Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Drop Zone. This is Sean Zock, co-hosted with Dylan DeChair. Dylan, we owe the people an apology. We did not have a podcast episode last week. We didn't do it. We, they, they messaged us about it and said, what gives, you idiots? And to be honest, what gives uh, were our stamina, our energy levels. After a pair of weddings, Dylan was flying back across the country. Sometimes the travel schedule doesn't add up. I feel like we can attribute part of this to you were in Tokyo for like three months. And uh, then, you know, it, it takes a little bit of effort to get back <laughs> to, you know, the heartland from there. So, look, I'm going to give us at least half a pass here, although apologies to Nelly Corda for not properly celebrating and highlighting her gold medal victory. Apologies to Nelly. Uh, yeah, that was that was a not a great look from us, but look, if this isn't your favorite golf podcast, then think about your favorite golf podcast host. None of them travel more than you and I do, so cut us a little <laughs> I don't know slack. if that's true, but that's I definitely idea. will uh, embrace that mentality. But I'm psyched to be here, Sean. I'm going to see you in person this week. In a, in a couple days here, we are reuniting. By a couple days, I mean tomorrow morning, my Alaska Airlines new found MVP status is paying off. I just got upgraded to first class. This is where uh, people are already stopping listening. So No, um, no, no, no. We must continue this. Uh, if you also think about your favorite golf podcast hosts who somehow travel more than us, none of them fly first class more than we do. So... <laughs> It's not that's a big deal. That's definitely not true. <laughs> but most of them probably don't fly much Alaska Airlines. So I think that I do have that market cornered. Um, Sean, I heard that you maybe, uh, maybe broke 80 last week. Is that true? Uh, yeah. I shot 78. Essex County Country Club, one of my favorite tracks in the Northeast. Uh, played that a day after playing Stanwich Club, which is probably my favorite course in the northeast uh, one of my favorites at least um it, look at you dotting gr- the country club scene yeah well you know a friend of mine recently went on a, a bit of a tirade telling me about how he doesn't want to play public golf ever again he lives in san francisco and you know buys his time at harding park and presidio and all those public courses and says they're always six hour rounds and so he says he's refusing to play public golf he only takes private golf invites. Wow. <laughs> this is not the ethos of the drop zone whatsoever. No, I want to make no, this clear. No, but I couldn't help think about it when everything is taken care of. It's so nice. Mm-hmm. Conditioning's incredible. You understand why those people and why those courses exist, and uh, we get to appreciate them once in a while. So. Totally. It is one of the perks of our job that we uh, we get to experience kind of both ends of the stick. We're going to play... Four public golf courses uh, next week. The two of us, um, we'll have some some stories and videos forthcoming from that experience. But um, that's going to be a blast. Seventy eight from a a ten handicap. Maybe you were a nine handicap. Now that must be dropping, sir. Yep, eight handicap now. But that's that's plenty to talk about my game. We don't need to talk about my golf. Let's talk about the Wyndham Championship golf. There was a record-tying six-man playoff on the PGA Tour uh, in the last regular season event of uh, of the PGA Tour season, and Kevin Kisner won, which gets everybody hot and bothered whenever Kevin Kisner does something in kind mm-hmm. of like a match play esque 
setting. Uh, and so everyone's thinking about Kevin Kisner and the Ryder Cup team. And he got asked about it a bunch afterwards. And you and I are here today to spend some time complimenting Kevin Kisner for his win, but yes. also also weighing a little bit of a wet blanket on everyone that wants him on the Ryder Cup team. Yeah, let's talk about the win first. And uh, and actually, as a pre- precursor to the win, it was a six-man playoff. It should have been a seven-man playoff, but <laughs> Russell Henley, who looked like it might be a zero-man playoff if he rolled in a birdie putt on 18. Instead, it slithered a few feet past the hole. He missed it coming back. So yeah, we ended up with six guys in the playoff, and it was awesome. A six-man playoff. Yes, please, I'll take that every single week. They sent them out together. Adam Scott stripes it in there to four feet for birdie. Looked like he would have a kind of a, you know, late stage career jump starting victory all locked up. And then, you know, this is how storylines flip. He misses his putt. Kevin Kisner hits it in there about the same distance the next hole. And um, shout out to him for just kind of hanging in there the entire day. He, he, Got off to a hot start, made a bunch of birdies at the start of the round, birdied 16 and 17 coming home, and everyone just clumped at 15 under. Nobody could get to that 16 under number. So well-earned win for Kisner. He moved up to 29 in the FedEx Cup. What, he's going to move up to what, the probably the mid-teens in the uh, Ryder Cup rankings when they come out? Yeah, right squarely in the potential wildcard pick zone, but also potential wildcard snub zone, which is, you know, again, going back to months ago when we talked on the Ryder Cup, uh, talked about it, we have too many people, too many good options. Compared to the European team, there are too many good American golfers that we have to choose from. And it just makes Steve Stricker's job incredibly difficult that these Americans just keep winning. It just keeps happening. So, uh, one thought on Russell Henley, he was the only guy in the top 35 who shot over par today. Uh, yeah. that's, a, that's a bad look. Adam Scott missed a four-foot, three-inch putt. Now, that is not a guarantee. And no. you've done pl- plenty of research uh, about what the overall make percentage is mm. from various distances on the PGA Tour. From four feet... It is about 91% from four feet, three inches. Obviously, that drops a little bit, probably closer to about 90 or 88, 89%. So you miss one in 10 of those if you are an average PGA Tour putter. Now, Adam Scott is not an average PGA Tour putter. So his own personal make percentage from there, maybe 85%. So basically, he misses that putt one out of every six times basically Mm -hmm. one out of every seven times so that is all a little bit of a explanation for anyone who's sitting there on their their couch saying what the hell how did adam scott miss now that is just a little bit of context the rest of the context is everything you see the fact that he hit it tight the fact that he's playing in a six-man playoff the fact that he hadn't missed a putt like that all week long and the only one that he does miss is the one where he's got nerves is the one in a playoff with a championship on the line is the one that he smashed through the break. Like when guys on the PGA tour are nervous, I think the first thing that really goes is not the line on which they hit their putt, nor the read. It's how hard they hit their putt. It's how, how close they can lag a putt from 50 feet. 
Adam Scott mashed the putt right through the break. There's break on that putt, but he wasn't watching Siwoo Kim's putt from down the line at all. I thought that was very weird. He was off to the side, mm. not really paying attention to it, putting his trust in himself. And, uh, yeah, it just didn't work out. So talk about not flipping storylines. Adam yeah. Scott could have could have hit a clutch putt for once in his life. <laughs> wow. My man, Adam Scott, taking it. It's funny. So, yeah, I looked into this a, a couple of years ago and was trying to make cross-sport comparisons. So the equivalent I found for making or missing a four-foot putt is it's basically like a really good free-throw shooter. So Steph Curry, uh, I think in 2019, shot 91.6% from the line, which was almost exactly the the average of a four-foot putter. Sung J.M. was the most average four-foot putter. He made 91%. So, you know, you can imagine Steph Curry stepping up with the game tied, free throw in hand, make to uh, make it to win the game, miss it to send it to, you know, a second overtime. That's that's basically the situation we had here. Yeah. So, you know, is when he misses, is it because of nerves or is it, you know, that's just a one in 10 chance? You'd have to think it's a little bit different than uh, than just your average four foot putt you know, middle of the Friday round. Yes, it's different. And the one that Adam Scott hit, like I said, mashed it right through the break. And that would be kind of like Steph Curry hitting, honestly, like a brick free throw. I back think. iron. Like back iron, like in hard. Uh, yeah. And so there, all this kind of context is important for understanding how Kevin Kisner won, right? Yeah. Because yeah. if we're going to talk about him being a deserving Ryder Cup player, wild card selection by Steve Stricker. Can we talk about this victory without putting it into context of, you know what? He didn't necessarily, well, he won it, but he also had it given to him. That's kind yeah, of Yeah, he did have it given to him. In his defense, he made that putt. Adam Scott didn't miss that putt. You know, that is the point. That's partly the point is that he is the guy that seems to make those putts. Of course, there is his playoff record in the past where he hasn't gone out there and, and stolen anything. He hasn't made birdies on uh, on playoff holes in the past. He he was 0-5 going to, uh, to this extra session, and so he said he was really happy to win just so people would stop asking him about that record, which I understand. Um, but look, he has not played well enough to make – a Ryder Cup team in the past, and he has not played well enough to really play his way onto this team. There's still time left. If he goes gangbusters the next couple weeks in the playoffs, that's one thing. But if you think that Kevin Kisner should be on the team right now, it's certainly not because you think he has uh, earned it on the, the merits of his play. It's because you think he has some kind of innate quality Sort of an, an equivalent to, you know, the way Ian Poulter would be on the European team no matter where he ended up in the rankings. You know, it, yeah. it's it's not like you can't make a fully coherent argument for Kevin mm-hmm. Kisner. At some point, you have to get to something vague like, yeah, he's a grinder, you know, and I think <laughs> that that is just he's a dog. He is a dog. And, and I think that's worth something. I mean, there's a reason that Europe beats us every couple of years in this thing. But if you're going off who is most deserving to be there, Kevin Kisner's not going to be on your American team. No, he can't be. And if you want, for me, for my money, a good example 
of why he shouldn't be chosen over the people that are right next to him. Let's just look up one position. Kevin Kisner is ranked 18th in the Ryder Cup rankings for Team oh, USA. We got some new rankings. Good. Number 17, one above him is Sam Burns. Who do you think's played better golf this year, Kisner or Sam Burns? It's definitely Burns. Hmm. Now, it gets even more similar because Kisner won a six-man playoff today. Sam Burns missed a short putt and lost a three-man playoff last week at the St. Jude event. And so what's the difference between these two guys? Well, Kisner had a bit of an opportunity handed to him, and he made the most of it. Sam Burns had an opportunity that he earned, and he didn't make the most of it. But that's just one event. Like, one event results unless they're like the last event prior to the Ryder Cup decision-making, they shouldn't hold a ton of weight. That's why Phil Mickelson is in huge jeopardy to not make this team because he had one phenomenal event this year. It happened to be a major championship, but it also happened to be three months ago. And no one is really, really, I guess, super positive that Phil would be on this team because of how long ago it happened. So Sam Burns has... I think four or five top three finishes this year. He's He had a toward stretch and actually won an event earlier this year. He went on an injury. And I remember saying at the time, he, he left the tour for probably three or four weeks to a- address that injury. And if he would come back and play good golf again, you've got to give him a nod. He's just had a better resume all year long. He most recently had a really, really good showing last week. He'll probably have a good showing during the playoffs. How can Kisner get awarded a position over Sam Burns. It's going to come down to those little differences uh, for Steve Stricker. It's because he's a dog. <laughs> you think, think Sam that Burns is the most, isn't a dog, though? That's the doesn't most that guy, coherent argument. He's he a tiger. dog tendencies, Sam he, Burns? He's a tiger. They are almost exactly the same uh, this year. They have almost the exact same putting stats. They're both basically 15th in strokes gained putting on the year. They're both good putters. What do you want for a Ryder Cup guy? You want someone who's going to make clutch putts and you need someone who obviously whistling straights can pound the ball a little bit. Good ball striker. Again, if you if you're going to come down to just tell me that Kevin Kisner's a dog, well, he should have been on three or four Ryder Cup teams already by now cuz he's always been this fringe guy. He's always been a dog. He's always performed well in Austin at the match play. Mm-hmm. What's different now? that we haven't seen in years past. There is something intriguing about that match play showing. And I understand the, you know, I'm kind of taken by the argument that, uh, not that he's the most deserving, but like if you look at the American team outside of the guys that are going to be in that top six, it doesn't really strike the fear of God in you. You know, these, <laughs> these guys in a match play situation. Like if you think of match team match play golf, as different than stroke play golf, which I'm always confused about how different we, how differently we should think about it. There's not a lot of guys that are like, oh man, they're going to really come out and punch you in the mouth. It's just a bunch of guys that are really good at golf, but they don't yeah. necessarily have that X factor. So, all right, if you if you start with uh, Jordan Spieth at number seven, he's in. So that's the yeah. line. Then you have Harris English at number eight. In in no world would I have thought a year ago, say, that Harris English would be, you know, approaching a lock to be on this Ryder Cup team. So that seems a little wild. Patrick Reed at number nine is the opposite. He 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 a dog. He's on the team. 
Daniel Berger at 10, Patrick Cantley at 11, Tony Finau at 12, Webb Simpson at 13, Scotty Scheffler, Jason Kokrak, Billy Horschel, and Sam Burns. None of those guys make you say, oh, yes, he absolutely 1,000% is going to put this team on his back. Nope. You know? This is, it's like, you can't talk about any of this stuff without diving fully into like sports cliches. I think that's why it's so hard. Because at the end of the day, look, yeah, these guys are going to, we just saw it at the USAM match play. There's a ton of randomness involved in all of this. And, you know, you can look smarter, you can look stupid, and it's pretty hard to prove that someone made the right or the wrong decision afterwards. But, I don't know. I'm talking myself in circles now, Sean. But no, I don't think Kevin Kisner deserves to be on the team. But if he was on the team, I don't think that Team USA would be worse off for it. Does that make sense? No, it makes sense. I just keep thinking back to like the Paris Ryder Cup 2018. Uh, obviously, things are different. The European, the RNA, they, uh, the European Tour, they set up the tournament that week or they set up the, the field of play and they made it super tight and not exactly into the Americans' hands. But I, I remember thinking okay, you know, we may have a, a rookie, a Ryder Cup rookie in Justin Thomas. That was his his first appearance at a Ryder Cup. But what did he do that week? He paired up with Jordan Spieth, a guy who had kind of been struggling in 2018, and they were amazing together. And yeah, JT, they were. And then JT went out and battled with Rory uh, in the first singles group out. None of the dudes who you mentioned, Patrick Cantlay, Tony Finau, Webb Simpson, Harris English, like none of those dudes are going to step up in the way Justin Thomas stepped up. And should we expect that out of them? I don't know, but weird things seem to happen with other, like with the European team more than they happen with our wildcard selections, our being the Americans. Thomas Peters at Hazeltine was this ridiculous asset that played with Rory McIlroy so well. Frankie Molinari was an absolute buzzsaw. Tommy Fleetwood, they paired up to be the most ridiculous duo. And now both of them are like honestly struggling probably more than they have in the last five years. These weird things happen during the Ryder Cup for these like half fringe European players. They never seem to happen for our guys. When was the last American that like did really big things in the Ryder Cup that like totally surprised you? It sounds like we're both talking ourselves slowly further towards the, the Kevin Kisner position. I will say I think the Justin Thomas connection is interesting in a certain way because as as much as the inclination now is to turn this stuff into statistical analysis and um, you know, basically a breakdown of a guy's game and how it fits and, you know, birdie percentage and what, you, you know, if you look at, if you look at essentially the books, when these guys were going to the playoff today, they all had essentially the exact same statistical chance to win, which is interesting, yeah. which is saying essentially, look, Roger Sloan is just as likely to win this golf tournament as Kevin Kisner or Adam Scott, which feels again in a sports cliche world wrong. But that's kind of the question at hand is like whether that is wrong. But there's, I think that guys that want to be there play better. Patrick Reed yeah. loves nothing more in the world than yeah. being on those Ryder Cup teams. He plays really well. Justin Thomas loves that stuff, loves putting the stars and stripes on. Xander Shoffley really wanted to be at the Olympics. I don't think it's a coincidence that he played well there. That doesn't necessarily mean, you know, lots of other guys wanted to be there too. Um, who's going to thrive though? Like in the setting, there's no setting 
that matters in golf quite like the Ryder Cup. Mm. The actual surrounds of what it means. Daniel Berger we saw play in the President's Cup. Kisner played in the President's Cup. Patrick Cantlay played well with Xander in the President's Cup. Did Tony Finau totally live up to the setting in Paris? Uh, no, I don't said think so. He was so. kind of freaked out. <laughs> yeah, and Scotty Scheffler hasn't played in any of these events. Jason Kokrak hasn't played in any of these events. Billy Horschel hasn't played in any of these events. Sam Burns hasn't played in any of these events. So, yeah, I mean, it's an absolute toss-up. Uh, and the more and more I look at it all, we're going <laughs> we're, we're gonna to say this within the next month a ton. But it just it starts to look like there are cracks in this team that shouldn't there shouldn't exist when you just look at the world, the world ranking, the majors, the victories that are piled up. Uh, there are cracks. That's kind of uh, the bottom line at this point. There are cracks, and I, I think the reason that you know we've already gravitated towards this as a Ryder Cup conversation is because it's the main chance that we have to really take stock of where everyone sits relative to each other, you know, how these players stack up, uh, how the American team stacks up against, you know, we don't have these team dynamics in golf very often. So when we do, it's pretty fun to think about, you know, where these guys are relative to each other and how you really can define Harris English and what feels like a, you know, softer number eight spot when, Obviously, he's played well enough to be there, but there's a certain X factor that going into match play against, you know, Sergio Garcia might not strike as much fear in our opponents. Should we just get drunk and put Phil Mickelson on the team? Why not? I mean, do you think there would be a meaningful difference if you put guys 13 through 24 out there instead of guys 1 through 12? I'm not I mean, who's, sure there who's would be. 24, Brian Harmon. Who's 21? Kevin Na. Kevin Na was in the playoff. What if Kevin Na won the playoff today? He's moving into Kevin Kisner's spot on the Ryder Cup rankings. Kevin Na's got a interesting match play record. Like what? He's the one that that <laughs> that did the all that weird stuff with DJ at the match play this year. Remember that? Like Mhm. A lot of people were like, "Oh, I want him on the Ryder Cup." That team. was weird. Yeah, totally. No, and I mean, they got the guy was walking in putts today. He wouldn't go away in the uh at the Wyndham today. I think that and I threw this out on on Twitter to a fairly apathetic response, but I think that there would be something intriguing. This would never happen, but uh indulge me. If you if you had Kevin Kisner captain the B team and, you know, it was kind of like the scout team and you had them play the A-team, prep them up a little bit, but then if they beat the A-team, they just get to go. So you get a bunch of dogs. You get Kevin mm. Kisner. You yeah. get... Uh, you want you a get, bunch of dogs instead of Colin Morikawa and mm-hmm. DJ and Brooks Keegan and JT. Bradley out there, <laughs> Phil Mickelson. You get Kevin Na, Will Zalatoris. Brian Harmon would be the heart and soul of this team. Ryan Palmer you'd get on there. And just basically say, look, we'll scrap you guys to death. I love, love, love how you included Keegan Bradley on this team when he's ranked 34th and hasn't won a tour event in years. Mm-hmm. Why guy is he that, on the B team? Guy that wants to be there. I don't think. I think he could still unzip the uh, the gear that he had. I think he never unpacked his bag from the last Ryder Cup loss. He never really got over that one. Nobody wants to be on the Ryder Cup team more than Keegan Bradley. It's looking a little bit unlikely at this point, unfortunately, for him. You know who has more Ryder Cup points than Keegan Bradley? Charlie Hoffman, who has done what? Nothing. 
Matt wow. Kuchar. When was the last time Matt Kuchar played on Sunday on your Matt television Kuchar screen? had a gritty performance this week to move from number 124 to number, I think, 121 in the FedEx Cup. So shout out to him. Lucas Glover has more Ryder Cup points than Keegan Bradley. Can you, for the next month, talk about the Ryder Cup and never mention Keegan Bradley's name? For the sake of this podcast. We'll have to see how he plays, I guess. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Let's let's move on. Uh, James Piott wins the U.S. Amateur at Oakmont. And I don't know how much of it you got to watch. But mm-hmm. I watched actually a bunch. I didn't. I I was sort of in and out for a little while, but I got into the the match play. Match play is just so fun. Match play on a cool golf course is even more fun. Wow, what a great Oakmont's take! So hard. Yeah, I know. We're really getting edgy here. I got a question for you though, Sean, because some people were starting to talk about this. Daniel Rappaport was talking to him a little bit about it. Should the U.S. Amateur? No. Good, good answer. Should the U.S. Amateur go away from match play? Should we should we identify a champion in a uh, more thorough test of stroke play? Was basically the question. Look, I I respect Daniel's takes. I think he. You don't have to say that. No, I do. I actually I like I think I like what he brings to the game, especially on, on golf Twitter and. He's not afraid to share, which is the most important part of a take Smith is not being afraid to share what you're thinking about. He might be a little out over his skis with this one, mainly just because it's always been this way. It's always worked out this way. And you know what? The best player that week still often runs through match play Mm -hmm. when Bryson did it, when Tiger did it, when Matt Kuchar did it. Like it's always eventually still the guy who's playing the best. And just because I don't know whoever the the top seed would have been going into this week, Pearson Cootie or Bo Jin or any of these guys that are like are stupid, talented, going to be tour players eventually. Mm-hmm. They didn't play well enough this week, whether it was in the match of 64 or if it was in the stroke play or whatever. Generally, you have to play your gosh darn golf ball to advance first and foremost to the match play and then to beat a bunch of people in match play. So no, sorry, Daniel. This is the wrong take. Match play is still really, really good, especially at the U.S. Amateur, especially at a course like Oakmont. I don't know if you were following like the scores these guys were actually recording. Mm-hmm. You know, par was good for so many whole victories. Yes, bogey was good for a number of bogey whole victories. was winning a bunch. It was that one of those fun courses where you can see when. You know, a match would suddenly flip when someone would hit it on the wrong side of the 17th green, for example. So that's short par four. Um, and seeing, yeah, seeing par just be such a good score because it's funny when you see these guys playing in college tournaments or, or playing in some of these amateur events or when they get out to the Corn Ferry Tour, you see them just so many guys are shooting 64, 65, you know, 62. And then to see them come out and play and match play and, you know, maybe make a few birdies, but definitely make a bunch of bogeys and doubles at Oakmont. That's fun. That introduces a different element to the game. If you shot 36, no, excuse me, it would be 35, I believe. Yeah. On either nine at Oakmont this week, you're winning that nine in your mm-hmm. match. If you have a bunch of pars, I guess I guess I, uh, I attributed the stroke number to it, but... If you make par in every hole, you're winning your match. There's not a lot of golf courses, I think, in the country that would host the U.S. Amateur, and then that would also 
be true at. Maybe, maybe a super difficult Pinehurst would be able to do that, host the USAM and do that. Maybe Pebble, but there's enough birdie holes at Pebble that guys kind of need to make birdie to win them. A par five, number 12 at Oakmont, you make par there, you're probably not going to lose the hole. Like, it's yeah. really good. It's a really good score. And so that was fun to watch, at least uh, for me, checking the scores online. I think one of the more interesting um, components of of our friend Danny Rappaport's take is that the U.S. amateur gets a ton of exemptions. That it, It's an incredibly meaningful event in that way. And I think you could, I don't know if it's gone too far, but it, it is sort of a wild thing how winning the USAM opens so many doors for you, um, gets you into the majors, gets you into, you know, I mean, it, it gets you just about everywhere you want to go, at least for the next year, um, in the golf world. And so maybe there's too much weight on it from that perspective. No, no, but, no, 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 no. Okay. The USAM needs to stand for something. It is truthfully the biggest amateur event in the world. Am I right about that? Yeah. No it's the biggest amateur that. event in the world. And what do we really hand out with it? Exemptions into the U.S. Open, exemptions into the Masters. I think you get an exemption into the British Open. Um, how many other exemptions do you get? Not a ton. I mean, you probably get a bunch of sponsors exemptions if you want to mm-hmm. play in, yeah. in various events. Uh, I think you get an exemption into the Memorial, maybe. Maybe in the, in the Bay Hill uh, Invitational. But like... Ultimately, I think that is totally deserving of, frankly, beating 300 other amazing amateurs in one week's time. That is completely fine with what is the biggest amateur event in the world. Uh, the, if, if it, would be, it would be different if there aren't a lot of other exemptions that can kickstart careers. There are exemptions all over the, the sports, uh, the golf world. This isn't the only place that people start their careers. If it was, then you would need to have a lot of the best players win this damn event. But there are exemptions all over the place. You can get them for wearing, winning the Western Am, the the British Am. Like, it's fine. It, it's completely sufficient. I think it's completely appropriate what you get. And if you don't get it, you'll find your way. If you're if you're an elite Am, you'll find your way uh, via ex- various other exemptions. All right, you heard it here. The USAM is fine, and it's great. Let's uh, let's not have a referendum on every single golf event um, that is just always going to be the same. Do we do that to the Masters every year? When the Masters kind of... I don't think tries- we do. You know where we do do it, though? The PGA Championship. <laughs> <laughs> we definitely yeah. do. Annually. And, you know, we, we probably do it to the US Open. Um compared to, you know, that goes to a different place every single year. And we try to grill the USGA and whether doing it right or wrong based on course setup. Um, But speaking of the USGA, they have announced that Oakmont and Marion are going to get a bunch of US Opens, particularly Oakmont. Uh, And I guess what annoyed me this week is that so many people were focused on when these US Opens are set to happen. They went so far as to announce the 2050 US Open. I think we've got a new segment being born here. What annoyed me this week by Sean Zock. And this, tell me, what, tell me why it annoys you that people are complaining that, well, that's you know, the they're scheduling 2050 U.S. Opens when Marion will be waterfront property. Every, every single, like, 
person who hated that Chambers Bay had a U.S. Open, hated that Aaron Hills got a U.S. Open. They come around and respond to the USGA announcing, hey, Oakmont, the course you guys love, is going to get a bunch of them. Mm. <laughs> You're going to get six of them between the men and the women. Oakmont, this is going to be our, our secondary professional golf anchor site for our USGA championships. This should be met with so much uh, happiness and joy and like, hell yeah, we got this right, the USGA. You're making Oakmont as big of a deal as we all believe it to be. Just because they attached a date to it shouldn't be the distracting part of the news story. The news story is, hey, we're bringing the best players in the world to truly one of the five best golf courses in the world. We're going to do it on repeat, just like they do it in the British Isles. Remember, St. Andrews gets to do this. They just don't announce it, you know, decades in advance. But it's basically, it's basically silently written in stone that St. Andrews will host an open every six to eight years. Mm -hmm. So why is it weird that the USGA has now done the exact same thing with Pinehurst and Oakmont? The, the two best championship courses this side of Pebble Beach in America. What's so wrong I, about that? I think it's just funny. I think it it's mostly as simple as that. It's just kind of funny that, you know, that we're already scheduling. Most of the people that are going to be playing in the 2050 U.S. Open are either not born yet or, you know, probably have never played 18 holes of golf. You know, I think that's that's just part of it. Is like, it's going to be a different squad, so it's hard to project out. None of the people hey. that are organizing the golf tournament are going to be working at it, but whatever, that's fine. Hey, you know who's you know where they're going to host the 2050 Masters? Where Augusta National? <laughs> I know it's, it's not true. The no same. one's mad that they've scheduled it out that far. No one's upset that Brisbane is going to host the 2032 Summer Games. I've got I mean, a no, question. For it's not you. the same, but like. Just don't be upset about something for an afternoon. Come on. Yeah, yeah. Let's not get sidetracked from the real issue here, which is Oakmont. And I have a question for you as a Wisconsin man. Does Oakmont satisfy Midwestern golf? No, I am in the I live in the hub of the Midwest. Is that mm -hmm. fair to say? Chicago, would, Illinois. Yeah. It's the biggest city in the Midwest. It is the hub of the Midwest. You're in the you center can... of the cheese wheel right there. <laughs> exactly. Now, if I wanted to drive from Pitts from Chicago to Pittsburgh, you know how many hours that's going to take me? Go across Indiana, across all of Ohio to get into Pittsburgh. If it's more than an it's probably eight hour drive. Are you looking at I'm up? checking. Seven hours and three minutes without yeah. traffic. So are we counting like Tulsa, Southern Hills? Is that Midwest? Because that's what Oklahoma's exact... gray area to me. I mean, that's Big 12 territory. You're, you're pretty yeah. much in the south there. That's Tornado Alley. Like we can have more than four regions in this country. We've probably got like 12 regions. The Pacific Northwest, California in its own region. You've got the southeast. You've got Texas. You've got Tornado Alley. You've got the mm -hmm. plains. You've got the Midwest. You have the northeast, and you've got the mid-Atlantic area, and then maybe the Appalachians or whatever you want to call the Carolinas in that area. We can have more than four regions. Pittsburgh is not in the Midwest. It's not in the Northeast. It's the Mid-Atlantic region. Would you feel better if it was, you know, 40 miles west into Ohio? If Ohio yeah, annexed sure. Pittsburgh, would you accept this better? Yeah. 
I think so. But I, I, Ohio itself is even kind of borderline. <laughs> I love that. I love a little Ohio drive by here. Um, all right. Are there any other Midwest courses that then should get tossed into this rotation occasionally? Yeah. Whistling Straits should. Mm-hmm. I'm half in on this take. The fact that Whistling Straits is not going to host major championships moving forward sucks. I think. I don't know mm-hmm. if you feel differently than me, but it is a major championship golf course. And if you get it during a windy day, it's one hell of a beast. And that's why the Ryder Cup there will probably be phenomenal. But the PGA of America will not be able to bring its major championships there. It, you can't do it in May. Mm-hmm. It, it's too unpredictable. And so I think the fact that we play this game of, oh, that's a PGA of America course, or oh, that's a USGA course, that can be played. But now that the PGA of America won't be hosting its its crown jewel at Whistling, why can't Whistling host a US Open? It's kind of brawny. It's kind of big. It's mm-hmm. It's in the heartland. It's publicly accessible. I like it. Aaron Hills also would like a word, I think, with the USGA. I, I don't, I don't know where that stands. If there are prospects of of uh, the USGA heading back to Aaron Hills for another U.S. Open, well, the Women's Open, the Women's Open is there in four years. We got the four ball going there next year, so the USGA will be spending plenty of time in Aaron Hills, and I think in due time, when that course continues to grow in and continues to mature, hosts events and does it successfully the usga is going to have a ton of hindsight that they might already have that hey you know we probably just didn't do it right they didn't do it right at chambers either that is the ultimate take i'll accept that um sean are you excited for the aig women's open this week yeah and if so why oh yeah because it's at carnoustie carnasty when i was uh I was talking to a couple of players at the Olympics about just how crazy their schedule is to be a, a, an elite professional female golfer right now. You have basically gone from America to France to Japan to Scotland. And uh, that's mm-hmm. pretty darn incredible. And you know what? Soon enough after this, you're going to go to Toledo, Ohio for the Solheim, champ- uh, Solheim Cup. And so the, the women are on an absolute crazy, crazy schedule that they've had to just embrace. I think they've been really good sports about it. They haven't thrown a fit. They know that they're elevating their sport. Um, but anytime I talk to any of them about Carnoustie, their eyes like lit up. They love being able to play their major championships at the courses that have defined men's major championships. And is there a better Lynx course in the Rota, not named St. Andrews, than Carnoustie? No, it's so good. It's so recognizable. It's it's such a hard golf course. It's a great test. Depending on the weather, it can obviously, as we know, get nasty. And I think it's just great to have this event going to a recognizable golf course. I think that it's, for lack of a better phrase, you know, good for the sport. It's good for the game. Um, for the same reason that it was fun to tune in and watch some holes that we knew at Oakmont this week for the USAM, It'll be fun to watch the test that is Carnoustie. Um, and then, you know, you also have a bunch of compelling storylines and a bunch of the the best players and biggest names in the women's game playing well right now. Oh. Um, Ryan O'Toole, shout out to her for a 
an inspiring victory um, today in First Scotland. First win in 11 years. Really cool. 34 11 years old. years of pro golf. Shot 64 to get the job done by three shots. Um, but behind her, you have some established names. Lydia Ko shot 63 to, to finish T2. Can you think about that for a second? 11 years. 11 Ryan years. Ryan O'Toole. Think about when you started playing pro golf. How mm-hmm. old were you? 22. Yeah. So seven years ago, that's when you started. <laughs> and I'd given it up by 24. Yeah. And so if you had played pro golf that entire time and then added another four years on to wherever you are right now, mm-hmm. that's when you'd get your first win. That's how long she toiled without a victory. I'm that's feeling wild. hopeful here just with you saying that for my, my own self. Mad kudos to Ryan O'Toole. Those are honestly some of the best stories, late life stories, true journeymen, uh, journeywomen that actually get it done. You can just see it in their eyes. All the photos that you get on Getty, mm-hmm. them hoisting the trophy. It's like a full life, a lifetime uh, of, of toiling. That kind of is, it all comes out at that moment. Yeah. So, so shout out to Ryan O'Toole. She's getting married in December. She's, you know, sort of been saying she doesn't know how long she'll be out here at least full time. She wants to have kids, have a family. So to get this done is, is super cool. She'll be there next week. Aria Jatanagarn will be there next week. She finished fourth. Um, you've got the sisters, Corda, that are obviously going to be a big storyline. <laughs> I mean, there's a question in Tour Confidential tonight that we both scoffed at about whether you should take <laughs> Nelly Corda or the field. But the fact that, you know, she is entering as such a heavy favorite is pretty notable. Um, I haven't seen an exact number, but I, I guess she's coming in at like five or six to one. Yeah, she's really good, but it's not her versus the field. Lydia Ko is up and playing some of the best golf of her life again. And it's not coming out in victories at this point. It's coming out at a lot of second and third place finishes. But you know that she she actually sneaky takes it as deep as Nelly does. It just hasn't happened all the time this year. Um, I would I would actually put money on her because her odds are probably going to be a little bit nicer than Nelly's. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just I just hope that Carnoustie plays tough because ten years ago was the first and only time that they've hosted the Women's Open at Carnoustie, and it played tough, but not to the extent that. Uh, that it, that it played, I guess, for the men in 2018 when Tiger made that run at it. Yanni Seng won by seven, but she got 16 under. I don't want to see anyone getting mm-hmm. to 16 under. Frankly, when it's at Carnoustie, I don't want to see anyone getting to 10 under over the course of the week. And again, like you kind of have to take the approach of like, well, whatever the best players in the world shoot is what they shoot. But Carnoustie generally can be tri- tricked up, or maybe that's the wrong terminology. It can be created so difficult that, four under six under is one hell of an accomplishment over the course of the week, similar to how Oakmont tends to play. I just, I think of Carnoustie and Oakmont as such similar like bastions in their parts Mm -hmm. of the world that everyone's kind of a little bit afraid of these courses, like on their worst day, these courses scare the crap out of the best players in the world. Uh, And that's why it's called Carnoustie, I guess. Aria Jutanagarn, I think she's going to be there at the end this week. That's my that's my only lean. All right. Well, I'll take Lydia Ko. You can have her. And uh, the loser has to do 12 push-ups on the next drop zone. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be great audio. Yeah. All right, Sean. We better leave it there. I got some last-minute packing to do. We're headed to 
are we telling people where we're going? Yeah, Maine. We're headed to golf, Maine. Golf in Maine. I don't know what it's like. You grew up playing golf in Maine. I just arrived. Uh, I'm excited to have my first career lobster roll. Never had one mm-hmm. of those before. And and play the best public golf that uh, like the lower coastline of Maine has to offer. <laughs> That's right. This is my goal is to con- convert you to thinking that Maine is actually a extremely underrated golf destination. Vacation land. Nothing better than the end of summer in Maine. It's a beautiful place. Except for the prices. It's quite expensive here. But that's good enough for you and me today and this drop zone. We've reached the 45-minute mark, which, as we always like to say, is when people start to hang up. They (laughs) don't, though. They really don't. They keep listening, and we appreciate you guys making it to the finish line with us. Uh, If you liked this episode or really any episodes, maybe leave a little review, a little five-star rating maybe. We'll see you guys next week.